money talks. But what does money say? Well, I don't know about you, but about the only thing my money, money has ever said to me is goodbye. <laughs> is there anything else that money ever says to us? Well, sure there is. Money says, I can get you whatever you want. I can get you satisfaction. I can provide you with security as long as you live. These are some of the things that money says to us, but is money telling us the truth? Can money really give us the satisfaction and security that it promises? If so, then money is the most valuable thing that there is. If not, then something else has to be more valuable. Before we go any further, I want to make it clear that there is nothing wrong with money. It is not inherently evil. We need money to function in life. But when you look to money for ultimate satisfaction and everlasting security, instead of looking to God for these things, uh, well, that's when we've got a problem. We've got a little hum in the system here. So uh, while Kurt is working on that, uh, I will continue. <laughs> um, well, in today's uh, Bible story, we meet such a man who had this problem. Uh, he believes money is the source of satisfaction and security. And so he comes to Jesus, not as the source of satisfaction, but as the means by which he can get his satisfaction and his security. Uh, but Jesus uh, did not come to bring money to people. Jesus came to bring people to God. And that's what he is seeking to do with the man that we're about to meet in the story. Uh, I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 21. It's on page 871 in the Pew Bible, which uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible of your own, you may uh, use one of those uh, in back of the seat in front of you or maybe on the floor in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take one of these. Uh, we got plenty of them. I'd love for you to have a copy of the scriptures. So uh, let's go ahead and read this uh, scripture together. But be before we do, I had just one last little comment. Uh, I, I want us to go back and, and, and get the context for what's going on here. Uh, Jesus has been warning his disciples about certain dangers. Uh, the danger that hypocrisy presents. The danger of failing to fear God. The danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And now we're about to see Jesus warn his followers of another danger. The danger of having your values out of order. So now let's read the passage together from Luke chapter 12. Beginning at verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? 
And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and not, and is not rich toward God. Well, the man of the crowd had a set of values, but his values were out of order uh, because his priorities in life were out of order. His values were distorted. They were upside down. So uh, here, here's the first uh, out of order value that the man had. Your values are out of order if you love money more than God. The man in verse 13 is consumed with money. It's all he can think about. And so we look at verse 13. He says, uh, well, Luke tells us that someone said to him, uh, teacher, uh, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. Now, the, the things that Jesus had been saying about uh, our great value to God and making a stand for God, uh, were not sinking in for this man. There's, there's this huge crowd that was following Jesus. Everywhere he went, he, he, he drew a huge crowd. And, and Jesus is talking about a, a lot of important things regarding the kingdom of God, a lot of important things regarding our relationship to God, and a lot of dangers that were out there. And it's uh, almost as this man didn't, know what Jesus had been saying at all because he interrupts him and says, teacher, make my brother share the inheritance with me. It's, uh, I mean, can you imagine something like that happening in church? Now, I can't imagine someone whose mind wanders a little bit uh, as this man's mind seemed to have wandered. He could only think about the thing that was pressing on him, which was his money. And so he's not paying attention to the preacher. So it's good, it's encouraging for me to know that whatever you might be thinking about, whatever, wherever your mind decides to wander, uh, people who have heard far greater preachers, uh, Jesus in particular, uh, it's happened there too. So we got that out of the way. Um, let's move on. After the interruption, uh, Jesus responds, well, seems almost harsh. He says, man who appointed me to be a arbitrator over you. Like, um, so there are some things that you might bring to Jesus that he doesn't want to get involved in. Is that what he's saying here? Well, he doesn't want uh, to be drawn away from what he's talking about as this man uh, seems to think that his matter is so urgent 
that Jesus has to address that matter right now. Let's think about this for just a moment. Uh, suppose that Jesus were here and you have crowds of people who were following, hanging on every word that he says. Uh, I mean, and, and we should. Uh, Jesus is God and whatever he says is absolute truth. And uh, then suppose you have the opportunity to ask Jesus a question or say anything to him. Uh, what might you say? Um, well, you might offer worship, which would be optimum. Um, however, if you were you know, struggling with something, uh, you might um, ask him for you know, healing if you could not walk or you know, healing if uh, you were uh, you know, gravely ill or, 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 or something like that or maybe ask him for some kind of miraculous intervention. But this guy, when he gets the chance to speak to Jesus, he interrupts what he has to say and he says, make my brother give me half the inheritance or my share of the inheritance. It's, it's sort of like, you know, those of you who have young children at home, and, uh, you know, sometimes at Christmas, you might give a toy to your children to share. So, you know, like a, like a basketball or a soccer ball or something like that, it, it belongs to all of the kids. And uh, one kid decides, maybe it's the oldest kid, decides that, well, that's, that's his basketball. And um, he's going to use it anytime he wants. And the younger brother comes and uh, asks the brother for the basketball. You've had it long enough. Now I want to play with it. And the older brother won't give it to him. And so the younger brother goes to his mother and he says, make my brother share the basketball with me. It's part mine too, you know. This is pretty much what the guy is asking Jesus. By the way, you should know that that incident never happened in my life. You know, I never argued with my brother over who got to use the basketball or anything like that. We always shared and got along just divinely. And if you believe that, uh, there's a bridge up in Brooklyn I want to show you that you might want to buy. Um, nevertheless, I want you to get the flavor of what's going on in here. We, we've got a, a man who is consumed with his inheritance. He's consumed with this desire to get the money that he thinks, that he knows belongs to him. And he's looking to Jesus, you know, not, not so much to resolve a dispute. He is looking to Jesus to take his side. So, let me uh, kind of sum up the issue uh, with, with an illustration. Uh, you know, the, the issue is this man um, obviously loved money more than he loved God. Now, keep that in mind, because this is something that a lot of people struggle with. Once there was a Christian woman who went to a Christian university, and she graduated. Her father was a man of means. Uh, he himself was not a Christian, uh, was not friendly toward Christianity at all. So he went to his daughter, and he said, uh, called her by name, and said, Look, I will give you a house if you will let go of this fanatic religious stuff you're so attracted to. And so she's there, you know, weighing the balance. Well, what do I do? I've got, I've got 
my father has promised me, me a house, uh, you know, over here, uh, but, but, but God is, is over here. What should I do? She chose the house. And don't think that this doesn't happen more than just once in a while. The upside-down value, the out-of-balance, out-of-ordered value of loving money more than God leads naturally to the second upside-down value that we see in this man. And, and here it is. Your, your values are out of order if you come to Jesus for a solution to your problem, but not for a change of heart. Let me repeat that because I think it's important that we understand what's going on here. Your, your values are, are out of order. If you go to Jesus to say, uh, Lord, I need a solution to my problem, uh, but do not examine my heart. That is off limits. Okay? So here's the situation with the man of the story. Uh, obviously, he's not been listening to a word that Jesus has been saying. He's wanting Jesus to take his side, not simply resolve a dispute, uh, but you know, then Jesus uh, has this uh, rather stern uh, response to man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And, and saying this, Jesus is revealing what is actually in the man's heart. It's it isn't a desire for justice that's, that this man has in his heart. It's a, a desire for something else, which we're going to see in a moment. Uh, but, but first, I want to relate a little story. But before I do that, I'm going to take a drink of water. Back in the days of World War II, the Germans and the Allies both uh, relied upon deceptive methods in order to you know, wage, uh, you know, warfare on, on all levels, which in included the deceptive and the intellectual and so forth. Uh, the Germans wanted to distract the RAF, the Royal Air Force uh, of, of, of Britain, uh, so uh, to, uh, you know, divert their planes and make them use uh, bombs unnecessarily, they built this dummy airfield and they put dummy airplanes there made of wood and uh, then waited for the Brits to come and bomb them. And so the, that's what the Brits did. Only they didn't send a whole squadron of planes, they only sent one plane, and it dropped only one bomb, and it was made of wood. <laughs> so the message that the British wanted to get to the Nazis is this. We know what you're really up to. We know what's going on in your mind. And this is really what we see happening here. This man comes to Jesus. He wants to present himself as being this, uh, this honest victim uh, who needs Jesus' help to intervene, take his side, and make his brother give him his share of the inheritance. What Jesus does instead is, I'm going to read your heart and expose what is there. And for some people, that's a reason not to go to Jesus. If you can't go to Jesus and get what you want, all you get instead is that he reveals your heart. Well, I might not want to go to Jesus too much. 
I mentioned just a moment ago that there was something uh, in this man's heart uh, that Jesus wanted to warn him about, and not only him, but also everyone who was following him, because it, this is the context. Jesus is, is warning about hypocrisy. He's uh, uh, warning about uh, a, a, a number of things uh, that could um, separate his people, his disciples uh, from God. But what we see Jesus revealing in this man's heart is covetousness. So we're going to talk about it in more detail next week. Uh, so I don't want to steal too much thunder from next week's message. Uh, but I do just want to mention it so you've got it in your mind that this is a dangerous sin. It is a very dangerous sin because it leads to other sins. But there's one sin it leads to in particular. It's the thing that Jesus has been talking about. Hypocrisy. Covetousness leads to hypocrisy. It's not that Jesus is unconcerned about justice, but he was all too aware that this man's covetousness would do him more harm than not having his share of the inheritance. Covetousness is dangerous because it leads us to hypocrisy. And I find it amazing that Jesus is talking about all these things, and this man comes up here and interrupts him about, make my brother give me my share of the inheritance. And Jesus weaves that into his sermon uh, by revealing the heart of, of this man, showing that covetousness is there and how covetousness leads to hypocrisy. And Jesus issues the warning. Well, that's... Uh, one of the, well, let's move on here to the, to the next value that, that's out of order. And that is this. Your values are out of order when you can't distinguish wisdom from foolishness. I'll say it again. Your values are out of order when you cannot distinguish wisdom from foolishness. You know, sometimes foolishness looks like wisdom. And uh, this is the point of the parable that Jesus told. It's known as the uh, parable of the rich fool. Uh, there was this man who was already rich, but he became super rich when he had an abundance of, of crops that came in. It was a fantastic crop. And so the man had a problem. He had these storage barns, but they weren't big enough to hold all of his grain. So what is he going to do? So he, just, he decides, I I got it. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down these barns and then I'll build bigger barns and then I can store up all this grain and then I can just lean back, take it easy and eat, drink and be merry. So that's what he decides to do. He assumes that because he has an abundance of grain that he has you know, grain that, is, that having been stored up is, is going to last him for many, many years. And so uh, he believes that he has obtained satisfaction and security. I mean, who wouldn't if you have that much uh, 
you know, financial reserve, uh, you would think, uh, that would be enough to make you supremely happy. Uh, but something happens. We come to uh, verse 19, and uh, here's what happens. Jesus says, I will say, or the rich man says, rather, I will say to my soul. This is curious language, isn't it, here, you know, to refer to yourself as soul. But Jesus wants us to understand that the soul is at stake. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But, you know, the rich man also made the assumption that he would have a very long life when in fact his soul would be required of him that very night. As the scripture says, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? It's not going to be his, it'll be somebody else. So this man's mistake wasn't being successful in agribusiness, it wasn't his becoming rich. Nothing is said here to suggest that this man acquired this wealth by ill-gotten gain or that he climbed the ladder at the expense of others. God had just blessed his farming. But the mistake this man makes, the reason that Jesus judged him as a fool was that his wealth had become his God and had blinded him to reality. And as a result, he lived in a world of his own imagination, not the real world, not the world that uh, actually is. Now, the, the, the great issue of life is not whether you live in comfort and ease or in poverty and want. The great issue of life is whether you find peace with God or remain under his wrath. That is the real world. But riches and comfort distract us, they dazzle us, and they keep us from seeing things as they really are, making it extremely difficult for us to discern between foolishness and wisdom. Recently, I read an article about the Titanic. The Titanic you know, sank you know, what, about 110 years ago, uh, but it still captivates uh, the imagination of, of many of us. Uh, the sinking of the Titanic was tragic in, in so many ways. It was tragic because some 1,500 people died, but it was also tragic because so many of the lifeboats uh, that were available um, they were only about half full, uh, which is ironic because you know there really weren't enough lifeboats on board the ship for everyone to get in. And when it came time to get in the lifeboats, there were a lot of people who wouldn't get in them. Now, why would they not do that? Well, the ladies were invited to get into the boat first, uh, which was a noble thing to do. Uh, but the boats hung from these davits on the side of the ship. And you look straight down and you see that murky water uh, that is there. And so um, most of the women who were offered an opportunity to get on the lifeboats, some of them, some of them did, but most of them did not. They deemed the boat, the ship, the Titanic, to be safer than the lifeboat. Because the boats were up high and were kind of dangling. You have to get in that boat and, you know, the crew would lower you down into the water. 
And so, you know, there we'll be looking here. On, on the one hand, you, you've got this Titanic. However, it's taking on water, but it's still, it's still big. It seems steady. It seems safe. And besides, the cabins are a whole lot warmer than it is out here in this uh, frigid air. That almost sounds like a refrigerator, doesn't it? Uh, well, it's cold as a refrigerator. And on the other hand, you got the lifeboat. And they look at the lifeboat and think, this is rickety. Uh, I'm not sure this is a good idea. They were having difficulty distinguishing between wisdom and foolishness. And so the wise thing to them seemed to be to remain on the boat, remain in those warm cabins, which they did until it was too late. 1,500 people died Hardly any of them drowned. Uh, they died by hypothermia. The sad thing uh, in that this story illustrates for us, as well as the story, the parable that, that Jesus told, is that it's hard sometimes for people whose values are not properly uh, aligned it's hard to distinguish between foolishness and wisdom. Well, I want to wrap it up by um, weaving in a, another real-life story. Um, there was a woman named Huguette Clark. It's a curious name, uh, Huguette. Uh, she died a few years ago at the age of 104. Uh, Ms. Clark was a painter uh, not with a, a roller, but, you know, an, an artist. Um, but she was also um, an heiress to her father's fortune. Uh, William A. Clark, who was a mining magnate and uh, was eventually elected to the U.S. Senate uh, from the state of Montana. Um, but he was a wealthy man, and he decided he'd rather live in New York than in Montana, so uh, he went to Madison Avenue and built a mansion in the 1920s. The mansion cost over $7 million. Now, 100 years ago, $7 million was a lot of money. I mean, that was more than what it cost to build Yankee Stadium. So, I mean, we're talking big money here. But uh, Huguette, uh, the the daughter who uh, inherited the estate, um, not only uh, inherited that mansion, but there was another mansion that her father had off the coast of California called Bellas Guardo. And you know, 10 years ago, it was valued at, at over 100 million. No telling what it's worth today. But she never went there, never went. Ms. Clark, who um, you know owned this mansion, um, had a caretaker and had servants. She never met them, uh, but she did write letters, handwritten letters, to the caretaker, instructing him on how to take care of the property there. Now, at this point, I have to stand back and just make this observation. On the one hand, you've got this woman who was fabulously wealthy and owned mansion after mansion after mansion, and more money than anybody could spend in a lifetime. 
And on the other hand here, you've got this caretaker and his family and some other servants who are living in this mansion off the coast of California. Doesn't cost them a dime. All they have to do is take care of it. You kind of see wisdom and foolishness here side by side. But we also see you know, the, 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 the values of what is really important uh, compared to what only seems to be important. Not only did Hugh Gat Clark own uh, mansions on Madison Avenue in New York City and on the coast of California, but she went up to Connecticut and bought a, an estate called the Le Beau Chateau, uh, the beautiful country house. But she never went there. And she had all these mansions that she never lived in, never even went to see them. She owned a 42-room apartment overlooking Central Park. It had eight floors and 42 rooms. Well, I already said that, didn't I? She never went there. Servants had never seen them. Now, I don't know anything about Hugh Clark as a person. She may have been a very nice person. In fact, the people who knew her said she was that way. But I, I do know this, that she didn't manage her wealth very well. I mean, she had a doll, a doll collection. It was worth over $2 million when she died. But you know something? You don't have to have an estate like that to find yourself trying to find your satisfaction and your security in the stuff that you have. You could be, you know, relatively poor and still be trusting in the stuff that you have to make you happy and secure and satisfied. Remember what Jesus says, don't think that joy and satisfaction come from an abundance of things. Another way he said it in a different version is, a man's life does not consist of his possessions, even if he has an abundance. See, what Jesus is saying in this passage to this man and to the, the larger group of disciples and followers who were around, he's talking about the meaning of life. You don't find joy and satisfaction and security in stuff. You don't find those things that are so important in money. You don't find it in wealth. Where do you find it then? You find it in God. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, money talks, so we are told. Money tells you that it can provide you with everlasting joy, deep satisfaction, and eternal security. But money can't deliver what it promises. Only God can do that. If I could condense the message of this passage that we've been looking at together this morning, if I could condense it down to just one sentence, it would be this. I think I might have that. Yeah. The only things worth striving for are those that death cannot take away. Therefore, 
live your life in light of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that you have come that we might have life and have it abundantly. We come to recognize also that the abundant life does not necessarily consist of the goods of this world or the riches that could be made. All of that is found in you. Joy and satisfaction and security are the things that we truly hunger for. And we find them in you. So I ask, Lord, this morning that for whatever prompted us or motivated us to come this morning, Perhaps we hope to hear a word from the Lord that would bring encouragement. And so I do pray that we will find encouragement. But above all, I pray that you will examine our hearts and that we will be receptive to what you reveal to us and that you give us the grace to turn whatever upside-down values we have, right-side-up, which we can only do through your power. But we ask that you do these things for us so that we can live in light of eternity. Through Christ we pray.